0: I am so excited for y'all this morning to get to hear the interview that I've got planned for Peter Williams. Peter's a very dear friend. He's a marvelous scholar. He's a man of, of faith and devotion. He is a man with a vision. He's a man who does so many things for the kingdom and God uses him. And yet he still exists within a framework of humility and approachability. I hold him in greatest awe and respect among my friends. It is an honor for me to not only get to visit with him, but to call him my friend. He's very dear to me. And so would you please join me in welcoming, fresh from Cambridge, Peter Williams. I mean that. Thank you okay so here we are now i've interviewed peter in this class before if you're watching on the internet you can go back in the archives and find it i don't want to repeat a lot of it but i'm always uh, curious and i want to make sure that we've at least got ground level knowledge because i know there are new people who are constantly feeding into this class and rotating out of this class and everything else so we'll do just a smidgen of background information on peter and then after the smidgen we've got a lot to cover over the next uh, 45 minutes or so so join me in, in this uh, first of all Peter tell everybody a little bit about your wife and your two children so I've got a beautiful uh, is he mic'd up
1: Let's try this. That's on. yeah
0: yeah keep talking you're doing okay. good
1: beautiful wife called Catherine and I've got a beautiful daughter 17 uh, who called Lena and a beautiful son a handsome son, who's Leo at 13. And uh, I'm 48, and I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Oh. Thanks for the warning, Mark.
0: Yes. Be on? Be on. On. Good. Yes. Thank you, Peter, very much. So,
1: um, Sorry about the mistakes.
0: No, no, no. We only caught three. And <laughs>
1: there were many more, don't worry.
0: Is, uh, uh, what was the piece you were playing?
1: That was Chopin's Ocean Etude.
0: Ah, the old Chopin's Ocean Etude, Bruce no, hey. um, <laughs> That was wonderful. Okay, so Peter, you play the piano, you read the Bible, you have read the Bible in substantive portions in how many languages? Eleven. Read the New Testament through in nine. Mm-hmm. And then you've read in substantive portions several more. What language are you reading the Bible in right now in your personal quiet time?
1: Um, Arabic.
0: Arabic. Uh, uh, yes. I
1: don't, I don't speak Arabic, but I'm reading it. Uh, will um, you please
0: stand up, one of our many Arabic uh-huh. class members? Yes. Y'all applaud her. She constantly makes me Arabic food and brings it. This is this morning. We'll be having a party together right after class. If y'all want to join me, it's bring your own Arabic food. That's B-Y-A-B. Or B-Y-A-F. Sorry, I can't spell. I got too excited over the food. Um, uh, Arabic. What caused you to want to read the Bible in Arabic?
1: Well, the Bible's written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. But reading in foreign languages slows you down. And that helps you take more notice of each word. The harder work you make it for yourself, the more you're slowed down and you see things.
0: Okay, so first of all, the Arabic alphabet. Mm -hmm. How did you know the Arabic alphabet?
1: Well, it took some time to learn it. I often find with a language you need several run-ups to start
0: subtle run-ups
1: several run-ups
0: several run-ups so I-, I want you to walk through because some of our mm-hmm. class members may decide to read the bible in arabic next year we've got new year's resolutions coming up <laughs> uh, they've got a couple weeks to get ready <laughs> seriously
1: what makes you think i think i'll try it in arabic now well i mean Arabic is part of a group of languages. It's actually a cousin of Hebrew. So I've done quite a few of the related languages. So that makes it easier for me. And then uh, we're looking and we're, um, the alphabet is related to some scripts I've done before. So that all helps. But, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. I would say if you're to learn uh, another language, try New Testament Greek. Start reading New Testament in Greek. Okay. Most of my administrative staff at Tinder House, I've actually taught. They've read 2 and 3 John in Greek, Second and third John. It's not that long.
0: Okay now what when, when did you realize in your life that, in addition to the piano, you had this ability to do foreign languages so well?
1: So I was blessed at high school with uh, being able to learn Greek and Latin. there had great teachers, and I guess it 's around sixteen. I realized I was better than that at the things than the other things, so I kept going with that
0: and so which languages have you studied formally?
1: So, I did Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic as my undergraduate degree
0: and then in, and, and help people understand the relevance of Aramaic to to biblical studies
1: so about half of Daniel and parts of Ezra are written in Aramaic, Aramaic and Hebrew are cousins also Jesus uh, on uh, several occasions and maybe many more spoke aramaic
0: and and you have made a name for yourself that was an area of of study uh, to deal with Palestinian Aramaic, is that right?
1: So yeah, I've mainly specialized in East Aramaic, you don't want all of the gory details, called Syriac, but suffice it to say that there are still Aramaic speakers around today, several hundred thousand of them, uh, and it's spoken where Turkey, Greece, and uh, Syria meet, uh, and uh, it's possible there are quite a lot of Bible translations into Syriac, so the church spread out west, particularly losing Latin, but east, Syriac was the main language.
0: And you're actually doing some translation work right now for the Bible Museum uh, uh, in D.C.? Or it, explain?
1: Yeah, so I was at the Museum of the Bible uh, on uh, Tuesday, and uh, one of the things we're researching at Tindow House is actually one of their manuscripts that they have, where what happened is um, people reused writing material, so they rub out the under writing and they write something else on top and then people use fancy new technologies uh, multispectral imaging and so on to read the writing that's underneath and so I'm heading up the team deciphering the writing underneath.
0: So there's a manuscript, an ancient manuscript, mm-hmm. where because of uh, the expense involved in, in parchments or mm-hmm. whatever it is they were writing on, they would scrape off. Yeah or bleach off some of the old writing and then sometimes turn it
1: yep. and write something new on top. So what you can write on is you can write on papyrus or you can write on leather before paper gets invented or you have to write on something hard. But papyrus goes extinct around the year 700 in, in Egypt because it gets overfarmed, and paper hasn't been invented in the west They've got it in China for several hundred years. You've got a gap between about 700 and 1,200 when if you want to write something on flexible material, I'm afraid it's animal skin. And animal skins, you think how many animal skins you're going to need to write a whole book. It's a lot. So in other words, you're asking yourself the question, do I really need this book I've currently got? If not, I might rub it out and put some new writing on it. And so that's a whole period when you get these things called palimpsests, which are um, overwritten manuscripts. And now modern technology is often able to read the writing underneath.
0: Through the wonders of our Elmo... You've used a word that a lot of us are not familiar with. Have I spelled it right? You have. And a palimpsest is, explain it again.
1: So it's something that's been rubbed out and then written on top. So we've got the word palindrome in English, and the palim is like a palin, it means again, and possessed is to do with rubbing.
0: So, if I had an eraser and I don't, I could sort of use my.
1: Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> don't play the piano now.
0: And then I could turn it this way. Yeah. And I could write something brand new. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: You got it. And through the wonders of technology, mm-hmm. y- y'all are able to take it. And ignore brand new, rotate it back around, and kind of read what was underneath that's been rubbed out. Yeah. And so you've got a manuscript where you and Tyndall House are doing that right now. Yeah. And for the Museum of the Bible. So tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, <laughs> tell, tell us please what it is underneath that you're trying to read yeah. and then translate.
1: So when the person's making the stuff on top, someone else probably has already rubbed things out for them. So they're grabbing a pile. This one, this one, and so on. They go through this whole leaf. And that could be, as we found, for, to get 130-something pages on top, they are using 11 different manuscripts. So we've got bits of books, not complete books, and we've got astronomical text. We, uh, so we've got people writing about the star signs we've got bits of Bible uh, which some in Aramaic some in Greek we've got a gospel harmony where someone has put it's two column manuscript Matthew Mark Luke and John on one page where they align for the um, the passion narrative and has actually been numbering the sections to try and align them and we think that's a work in progress and we're able to access that. So uh, it's tantalizing because you, we haven't got the full manuscripts of any of these. We've just got parts of them. So you understand that you've got 11 different, um, uh, if you like, piles that have been grabbed from to get writing material for the top stuff.
0: Do you all realize we've got a world's like authority? on? How many of you know or have heard Pastor David talk about his days of old where he studied Hebrew at Cambridge University. Has anybody ever heard Dr. Fleming say that, Pastor David? What he's referencing when he says that is one time he and I were over in Cambridge and we went and sat in on one of Peter's Hebrew classes he was teaching. And we, Pastor David and I have officially put that now on our resumes, our CVs, that we studied Hebrew at Cambridge under Peter Williams (laughs) uh, for 30 minutes. And, uh, it was, it was, it was life changing, I've got to tell you. But, but Peter, we're honored to have you here. Great to be here. And I got to tell you that what impresses me most about all of this is, is with your intellect, with your energy, and with your vision, you have a heart first and foremost for God and His kingdom. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a marvelous thing. I want you to tell us how god's working in your life right now
1: so been exciting year this year my mum mother got married uh just a month ago uh she's widow met a widower and it's been really amazing to uh, see them coming together really suited people and i'm just seeing do you like the guy i do yeah okay
0: this is on the internet be careful
1: (laughs) andrew i like you very much But, but it's just, I mean, amazing to see God bringing things together in life. And I think, you know, okay, I'm 48, but I've, I've seen a lot of, of, of God working in surprising ways. Uh, and the timing of things is so, so perfect.
0: Um, you, your children, how old, Magdalena is how old? 17. 17. Mm. And she's going to be graduating from high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and years, years where time. will she go? Do we know?
1: Uh, she'll go somewhere really great.
0: So she is, has she applied to Texas Tech already?
1: or is? She... It's funny you should say that because I was uh, videoing with her yesterday and I was drinking my coffee and she said, is that a Texas Tech mug? And she was <laughs> right, absolutely right. She mentioned Texas Tech yesterday, I guess. Uh,
0: tell her we know people. Yeah and uh uh yeah and then leo how old is leo now he's 13 and uh, what kinds of things is leo interested in at 13
1: uh i think he would like a tesla <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: uh, you well, asked uh, uh, well god bless him and uh i would i would suggest he go to law school <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, uh, what, what are uh, Magdalena's interests? What, what kinds of things is she interested in?
1: Oh, she, she loves to read and she loves the outdoors. I mean, we all, we all do
0: all right tell tell everybody how you met your sweet wife
1: so we were on mission together in belgium and uh we were there on the coast and we're on the same team and then just by coincidence but it wasn't coincidence she was coming to the same cambridge college that i was already at just by coincidence she was assigned to the same bible study group that i was in and and so on And, and so we got to know each other
0: and uh uh you've been married how long (laughs) <laughs> 22 years <laughs> I will not ask you The pause
1: was just for drama
0: uh, Well covered, well played um, Okay, Peter, one of the reasons you are what, what brings you to the US right now?
1: So it was for the speaking at the Museum of the Bible and also at Hobby Lobby headquarters where I was um, uh, uh, training some of their staff um, about the Gospels uh, and uh, obviously
0: to come here and we're delighted that you came here when do you go back home this afternoon so you're on the you you, you will be home to, tomorrow. tomorrow tomorrow morning yeah yeah tomorrow morning um uh, i was uh, in cambridge this week while peter was here and i had lunch with your hebrew professor mm. and we discussed you <laughs> and i and i asked him uh what you were like as a student oh yeah Um, um, would you care to guess what he would have to say?
1: He was a great teacher.
0: (laughs) He said much the same about you as a student. Uh, He said that you are always diligent and and a really fine person as well as a fine student. Um, uh, Our class has met him before. I've interviewed him up here. Mm -hmm. Andrew McIntosh, if you remember, was Peter's Hebrew professor back in the day. Is that correct? It is. And uh, uh, it was it was fun to get to to have lunch with him this week. Now, Peter, you uh, turned our library onto something. You sent me an email recently and said there's an auction coming up, mm-hmm. and in the auction, it's going to be offered a Tyndale Bible, mm. which we wanted to try to get uh, uh, for the library. Explain to everybody first what the Tyndale Bible is. And then we're going to talk about it because you run the Tyndale House. Mm-hmm. So first, what is the Tyndale Bible? Who was Tyndale? So William Tyndale, born
1: 1490 and he died 1536. And he was a great Bible translator and he the first person to translate the New Testament into English from the original Greek. He was someone who studied very far uh, hard, spent a lot of his life on the run and ultimately was martyred for his work and so he brought out the uh, parts of the New Testament 1525 complete New Testament 1526 um, uh, and then there was a second edition um, and yet you know a lot of these things have to be smuggled around and so much of that is at the basis of the King James Version and then modern translations today uh, things like the English Standard Version and so on have his choice of words was like loving kindness and so on at, at their base so is a brilliant man
0: and he was killed i believe in oxford martyred in oxford? No, in belgium in uh, belgium yeah
1: yeah so he was he was on the run and he was betrayed and uh, caught in antwerp he then was imprisoned for a, a while in prison there's an amazing letter from him saying please bring books so i can study more he's you know and uh, he's obviously feeling very cold and then yeah he's uh, he's martyred
0: and this was for translating the Bible into English, in part.
1: That's right. That was, uh, you know, deeply rebellious. You know, he wasn't wasn't allowed to do that. There. I mean, there's a great time when he was um, actually people were confiscating his Bible, and he managed to get the Bishop of London, who didn't want his Bible, to buy up a whole load, which actually provided him with capital, so he could do more. Uh, so, you know, even through the persecution, God blessed him, and the you know the word has gone out.
0: You and I were talking in the car on the ride over here about how God can be glorified through suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, this may be a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us just a little bit, because different people suffer, in, uh, we all suffer in life. Mm-hmm. Explain to us a little bit about how God can be glorified through suffering.
1: Well, we don't know all of the things that uh, God will bring about through uh, any particular play, pain, and we don't know what wonderful delights he has prepared for those who love him. It says, "I has not seen, ear has not heard. And so I sometimes think about Job uh, sitting in his suffering, thinking, why is this happening to me? And he couldn't actually understand the answer if you said, so that people in Baptist churches in Texas in 2018 could be comforted by your story. And that's just Baptist churches in Texas. You know, there's other churches and there's other states and other places, you know. And the the extent of how many people have drawn comfort through that is just vast. So the, the book ends without answering fully why he's suffering. Um, and yet you know that there is a much, much bigger ongoing story of, of, of why this is happening, uh, giving meaning to it. Now, that, you know, I'm not saying we can all be comforted with that, but I think we need to be, comforted with the sense that god is a good god and god knows what he's doing uh we don't know what he's doing um but whatever that situation is that you're in um god is a loving father
0: so for example Mm tyndall and and i want to make sure that that we're fair to some of the people who found what tyndall was doing to be wrong uh, sometimes it's portrayed that it was only the church trying to maintain its airtight grip on theology and and keeping it from the masses. And there may indeed have been a political agenda going on. But, but there was also a concern, and, and this was the politically correct answer at least, but I think with many a genuine concern that the English language was too vulgar ...too common and too base to be used to express the glories and the magnificence and the doctrines of God. And so it needed to be done in a language that God had found through his church to be appropriate uh, uh, and not minimizing and in a sense blaspheming the name of God. And so the church would punish and, and the legal punishment that allowed for the death penalty was one of blasphemy. The idea that translating the Bible into to common vulgar tongues was, was uh, debasing who God was. And yet we recognize the glory that has been brought to God and the unfolding of the importance of us having it in whatever vocabulary we can, such that we'll even have children's Bibles now, Mm. who will take and reduce it down to the vocabulary of a first or second grader to try to understand the gospel story. Is that an important aspect of what uh, uh, you see God doing in our lives today? And and some of what you've done in terms of trying to, to best make accessible the truth of the Bible?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes you have to choose a side and Tyndale chose a side. It's not that there wasn't any other, other case that could be made. There, there is a danger that you, you let things go out and there'll be misunderstanding and all sorts of weird sex can, can begin. But he was right. The word of God needed to get out. He got it out. He gave his life for that. And so much good has come from that. And I think we today need to do everything we can to get the word out. Of course, there'll be chaos you know, there'll be all sorts of things that happen as some people misunderstand the Bible and, and and so on. But we need to have the confidence that God knows what He's doing. His word is there to get. get
0: so you get are out. the head of Tyndall House. Yep. That's not his actual house.
1: No. So <laughs> tell us
0: about Tyndall House.
1: Yeah. So we're, we're different from Tyndall House Publishers, which began 18 years after us. It's a house in Cambridge uh, with a uh, big library attached, not as. Uh, big or magnificent as yours but it's it's where this is uh, texas go ahead uh, <laughs> but we we have an amazing y'all collection. are doing fine for england go on <laughs> <laughs> we have an amazing collection and of course we under, we are understated in england as well uh, 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 oh oh um, oh so are we go ahead <laughs> So we have an amazing collection of scholars who work together there, about 50 at any day uh, at the doctoral level or above working uh, on researching the Bible. There is just so much to find out about the Bible. And uh, so they're going then back out to six different continents serving God. And so we're privileged to to be an incubator, a place which fosters uh, scholarship like that. We're a community, residential community, um, and uh, we also... Run projects as well.
0: Okay, so let's, let's look at uh, Tyndall House a little bit and what it does. Uh, by the way, um, y'all are putting out a magazine. Mm, yeah. and, and we need to make sure that everybody knows how to get a free copy of your magazine. How can they do that electronically?
1: So um, go to tyndallhouse.com. T Y N D A L E. Whoops. House. house
0: dot dot com. com.
1: And uh, you can sign up there. It's very simple for the free magazine, and there it is. And it's gonna be three times a year, uh, and it's uh, going to be about exciting Bible scholarship for lay people. So uh, do have a look at that.
0: Okay, and and next time you come, Mm -hmm. maybe you could bring us a few hundred copies we could hand out. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, uh, And and so Tyndall House, so that people have an idea I want to break it apart a little bit. Give us some names we might have heard of uh, that have gone through and used Tyndall House as a as a place of, of study and, and mm. ministry.
1: So D.A. Carson spent about nine years of his life there. Don Carson, uh, Wayne Grudem about four and a half years. I think John Piper was there for six months. We've had uh, John Stott uh, there. We, uh, Donald Wiseman, who was the great Assyriologist, discovered a lot, worked with Agatha Christie. We've got all sorts of, you know, uh, people. Um, Leon Morris, the most, uh, the best-selling theologian in Australia, again, spent time with us, uh, actually leading the institution. And uh, you've had Simon Gathercole here, I think, so uh, he can be added to the number, lots. Um,
0: the, the, The work that people do there also spans in age. So right now of the forty-fifty scholars you've got there, what's the youngest or who's the youngest in, in approximate years and who's the oldest?
1: So the youngest would be probably early 20s and the oldest would be about 70.
0: 70. So anybody who's about 70 needs to get ready to go over to Tyndall House and
1: do some work? Well, not everyone all at once, and we're, we're fairly booked up, but uh, <laughs> having said that, we welcome those who really want to do serious study of the Bible, and uh, it's a great environment to do that.
0: You need to expand your campus then?
1: Yeah, and also absolutely we need to expand our campus, yeah.
0: Okay, so anybody who wants to write a big check, you can expand your campus? Yep,
1: absolutely. <laughs> Just talk
0: to me. Uh- The, uh, uh, it's, it's an amazing ministry. It's an amazing work. And I want to get into this book for a little bit, which we've got a copy for everybody on. But I want to preface it by this. Um, I think people are sometimes shocked to find out that at some of the leading schools in the world, those who are charged with teaching the New Testament, the Old Testament, the languages in which they were written, um, oftentimes do not believe in the faith itself Mm -hmm. oftentimes would not be claiming themselves
1: to be even believers in God Uh, have you found that to be true as well yes so I I think you know in universities and and colleges everywhere you find debates and uh, people debate economics they'll debate everything and it's also the same about uh, the Bible and there are plenty of scholars who are uh pretty skeptical about uh the bible and about religion and p- part of that uh is uh, partaking of what's going on in the entire culture but part of it is also leading that so i think that in, in some sense uh, what we're seeing in china is a, a growth in the christian faith what we're seeing in um the west and in america is some shrinking of um uh, confidence in scripture and the funny thing is i think that that the shrinking of confidence in Scripture is happening simultaneously with the rise in evidence for the Scriptures. So it shows there's no direct pro- correlation between the amount of evidence and what people believe.
0: You've debated Bart Ehrman on the reliability of uh, the Gospels, at least? Or what did you debate we, him on? We
1: debated on the uh, reliability of the text of the New Testament, the, the, you know, the manuscripts and so on.
0: And, and, and people can, I'm sure, see that on YouTube or mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, but what caused you to write this book can we trust the Gospels?
1: Well, I've been thinking about writing this for about 22 years uh, since I first started speaking on the subject, and I thought there's really a gap for a small book uh, which people can hand out to their friends who are first asking this question. If we want people to trust Jesus, then the the very first question you've got to ask is, do we have reliable sources about Jesus? And so that may be a question for people, and I want uh, this uh, book to be able to plug that gap. Um, So it hadn't, it mustn't be too long. I just got it to 38,000 words. Uh, I want it to be even slightly shorter than that, but that's, that's where we landed. And uh, it's seeking to make sure you've got complete documentation of things. So if anyone's skeptical, they can check out any of my references.
0: Okay, so at the time of Jesus, let's look in the first uh, 30 years mm-hmm. of this era. Yeah. All right. We've got Jesus, and we can read about Jesus uh, uh, in a number of places, but notably we're talking about Jesus reading about him in the Gospels. Fair? Mm -hmm. So we've got the Gospels for Jesus. Who would you say was one of, if not the most famous people within the Roman Empire, uh, the the civilized world of the Mm -hmm. West at the time of Jesus?
1: Well, I'd say it has to be the Roman Emperor, who's Tiberius. He reigns from the year 14 to the year 37. So Tiberius ought to be the most famous.
0: And he is the Caesar. Yep. So Emperor. Yep. Tiberius Caesar. Yep. Ruler of the Roman Empire.
1: Yep. How do you know? That that, that Tiberius existed.
0: Well, I mean, how do you know Tiberius Caesar was the emperor and ruler of the Roman Empire?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question because a lot of this sort of stuff does depend on um, the written sources you have which um, come from quite a bit later. Now, there are coins that you have for Tiberius. So you could say you can add the coinage in and you can add the inscriptions in. But would you be able to put all the coins in the right order if you didn't have The historical records telling you which Caesars come in which order. So we sort of take these things as facts. We take them, you know, you you read them in all the textbooks. But actually, we've got to remember, we believe that because we're trusting historical records. And so it begins with the fact that our culture already has lots of trust in records handed down from a long time ago.
0: Okay, but but Tiberius Caesar, yeah, you find his face on a coin or Mm -hmm. his name on a coin. You might find his name on a pillar. Yep. Something like that. But if we want to know narrative about yeah. him, good Caesar, bad Caesar, yeah. uh, did he invent the salad dressing or the <laughs> salad, you know? We, yeah. we want yeah, some sure. details oh, about the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where are we going to get that?
1: So uh, you've got Valleus Paterculus.
0: Hang on. We just happen to have a slide. Oh, yeah. If we go to the PowerPoint.
1: And so we've got uh, Tastus. We've got Suetonius. We've got um, Dio Cassius or Cassius Dio. Um, And are they all on the screen? Yeah, they are. Um, So there we uh, went through, you know, who are the four main sources? So it's four main sources about the most famous guy in the Roman Empire, four main sources about Jesus. How many words have they each got in them? Well, you can see the number of words in the second column. It looks like Tacitus has got a lot, but Tacitus' annals is not mainly about Tiberius. It's mainly about the time of Tiberius.
0: Okay, I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment because... In Texas, sometimes we talk a little slower than you do.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So I want to make sure that yeah. we detail this yeah, sure. for those of us who are slow to listen and quick to speak.
1: As you know, I have a Texas accent.
0: Uh, oh, so we, 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 we did an interview in, in Jersey Village. Dear sweet lady named Lillian in, the, in the, the class over there at Jersey Village when we were over there before we came here. And, and she talked to Peter for just a second or two. But she said to him, she was greeting him before class, she said, now, are you from Texas? <laughs> <laughs> and he talked a little more and she realized he, he wasn't. Um, okay, so uh, uh is is the one who has written, he wrote A.D. 30.
1: That looks good, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, so he's a contemporary.
1: Yeah. The only thing is he's in the pay of Tiberius only to say good things about him. So of all the four records, he's actually thought generally to be the least reliable. And he probably stops writing in AD 30 because he says something that the emperor doesn't like and he kills him.
0: There is a a fellow that works at the Lanier Law Firm. His name is Johnny Cargill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny's in charge of saying good things about me. That's his job. I pay him to do that. And if he ever said something that wasn't good, i fire him like that. Not really. But maybe. So this is a fellow who's getting paid to do this, mm-hmm. to write. He's the PR man for Tiberius. Okay, we got him. Mm-hmm. Next,
1: Tacitus. So Tacitus is, you know, he's writing uh, years after the events and um, yeah he's he's a good source pretty negative about Tiberius
0: okay but but you've got here this column earliest copy yeah what does that
1: mean so the earliest copies of these are you know literally the earliest manuscript for Valeus Paterculus is 16th century for the others it's 9th century so it's a long time after the events
0: okay so if we go back to the Elmo for a moment Mm -hmm. our written sources for Tiberius The oldest copies we've got date from somewhere in the 800s to the 1500s. And the people actually writing is the PR man, who's the contemporary. And the others are 80-plus years later. Okay. Okay we're on all fours here yeah okay go back to the PowerPoint please next slide that you've got boom there yep. are the sources about Jesus so that we can compare them
1: so when you look at the number of words firstly there's on the whole a bit more there's also the manuscripts are a lot earlier whether we're looking at complete copies or partial copies they're earlier
0: All right, so if we go back to the Elmo, by the way, we've got some incredible people upstairs who switch back and forth, really do a good job. Kudos to you guys. Copies, we've got copies that go back to the, if we're talking about just fragments, the fragment of John, the John Ryland's papyrus, we've got them in the 100s through the up to current almost Mm -hmm. uh, fragments, and then... Basically full manuscripts we've got from the 300s. Fair? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yep. Now, this leaves the question of how early were the authors? Were they contemporaries or something like that?
1: And one thing I try in my book is not to say when the gospel writers wrote. But I start with dates given by non-Christian scholars and say, hey, that's better than Tiberius. And anyway, it's probably earlier than they're saying. Um, So So there's there's a slide where it is.
0: Let's go go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. So you've got a slide on this. Yeah. The Jewish Annotated New Testament.
1: Yeah, that's a group of Jewish scholars, uh, great Jewish scholars, who come together and they give dates which are, um, you know, uh, later than I would give, but they are still closer to the events than you see with the most famous guy of the Roman Empire, Tiberius.
0: Yeah, I mean, they give the dates for Mark anywhere as early as 30 years after the yep. crucifixion, uh, 40 years uh, for John, mm-hmm. uh, 50 years for Matthew at the yep. early end. And uh, Shane Cohen is. Uh,
1: he's a great Jewish scholar, wrote from the uh, uh, Maccabees to the Mishnah, and uh, again, he's giving similar dates. Bart Ehrman, a more skeptical guy, an agnostic, uh, but again, even there, we're using, you know, America's top. New Testament skeptics dates and it's still earlier than Tiberius.
0: So if we go back to the, to the Elmo, for Jesus and the accounts we've got on his, and by the way, I left out the fact that there are lots more words, lots more written, and what we're looking at where lots more was written includes people who are writing somewhere between 30 to 70 years after the events. And that's by the scholars who don't agree.
1: Yeah, Yeah, so so there are lots of conservative scholars who try and make a case here and there for earlier dates. I'm not interested in going there. I mean, I I think that, that I prefer earlier dates, but I'm looking at what we can actually demonstrate.
0: Okay, so it seems to me, just looking at the chart that we've made, that we've got lots more written about Jesus than the most famous person of the Roman Empire in the day. Yep. That we've got multiple Gospels, multiple written sources. Our copies predate the copies we've got of Caesar mm-hmm. by almost a thousand years. Mm-hmm. That it's written by people much closer to the events, save for the PR guy. Mm -hmm. Is this fair so far? Absolutely. All right. So within your book, beyond this, you look at evidence to show whether or not there is accuracy within the records that we've got of Jesus, right? Yep. Give us your most compelling arguments.
1: So one of them is just the places they know. There's some slides about this. uh, And uh, what you can see is lots and lots of town names that they are familiar with. They also know village names. So, again, that seems to suggest that they have local knowledge. I looked at all the possible sources they could have for this. So could they have got it out of books? And none of the books that they could have access to would actually have all of the place names that they have. So uh, they not just, they just know that. They know where the land goes up and down. So when they say someone goes down from Cana to Capernaum or from Nazareth to Capernaum, they know the topography of the land, the ups and downs, traveling times, little villages. They, they know things.
0: Okay, we're going to experiment for a moment. Class participation. How many of y'all know where... Shoe, texas is and could locate it on a map okay a couple of y'all have clearly been to lubbock how many of y'all know where spring texas is and could locate it on a map gee you must live nearby how many of y'all know where niena alaska is and could locate it on a map yeah one okay one guy two three four y'all watch life below Zero too. that's where i saw it okay so what's the point of that what explain to us why it makes a difference that we would look to see about all of the locations that are given within the these gospel accounts
1: well, one thing you're trying to do is work out the profile of the people who wrote the Gospels. So I'm looking at their knowledge profile, and their knowledge profile is they are really familiar with the land. So either they've spent lots of time in the land, or they've had really, really detailed conversations with people Can the you turn
0: his mic up just a little bit? I'm having trouble hearing him, but that may just be because I listen to much rock music.
1: And I'm also looking beyond the geography to how they know the tax systems. They know the cultures. They know Judaism. They know the customs. They know the names that people are called. All of these things.
0: All right. If we go to the PowerPoint, let me pull a slide up that uh, we've got here some of the towns. Mm -hmm. Arimathea, Bethany, Bethphage, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Dalmanutha Emmaus Ephraim Nain mm-hmm.
1: I mean some of these are big places like Jerusalem but a lot of them are small how does someone even get that knowledge of where these are
0: they, the, the, the internet wasn't that I mean Al Gore very fast. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: I mean it, it, it wasn't around yeah. yet
1: was it um, yeah America didn't exist yeah <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs>
0: Shameless plug on the fact that the Romans invaded Britain to access the tin mines in the south. Um,
1: <laughs> that good. was shameless. Yeah. That was Shall shameless. I just tell you, Tast has said about my country, it is permanently covered by cloud. So, anyway.
0: yeah. Okay. So um, uh, um, <laughs> do you remember what the, the, the Romans called London, what the name of it was?
1: yeah sometimes Londonium, but there's another one as well,
0: yeah, Lu Dunham. yeah, yeah right. we I took British history at Texas Tech <laughs> uh, um, so the 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 gospel writers' references to towns I mean, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have Eusebius's atlas, even. Mm-hmm. I mean, where, where are they going to get these town names to put the obscure town for Luke to talk about the widow of Nain's son being brought back from the dead?
1: Yeah, I think the most natural thing is that they are people who live in the land or they've done loads of interviews with people who have.
0: All right. Beyond just uh, the the cities themselves, we've got the regions, the Decapolis mm-hmm. uh, from the, the yep. word 10 cities. Yep. What is the Decapolis and why would so, that matter?
1: Uh, you look at the Sea of Galilee and go east from that. Then you've got this, this area which is more pagan. It's where the, uh, the pigs go down into, um, you know, they, uh, down, down the, the hill into the lake. Um, and Jesus travels there as well. Uh, so it gives them access to Greek speaking that's certainly there. And the Gospel writers know about that and they get the culture right. I mean, that, that story about the pigs It's set in the Decapolis exactly where it's not so Jewish and therefore you have pigs. You know, it's that sort of knowledge which is just shown all the time in the Gospels.
0: You wouldn't expect a story about pigs rushing down the hillside in Jerusalem. Understood. Uh, Beyond the regions, the bodies of water, Mm -hmm. same principle?
1: Yes. So, I mean, with the Sea of Galilee, they've got very specific knowledge that you you get windstorms They're not talking about rainstorms there, windstorms. They they know where the other side of the lake is. The other side is defined not by Google Earth, but by the other side if you were a Galilean fisherman looking over to the other side. Um, Matthew and Mark call it the sea, but Luke, who actually probably lived near the Mediterranean, calls it the lake, you know, because it is just, you know... It's a lake. It's a lake. So all of that sort of perspective uh, we we get. They know about boating there. They know about fishing. But they also know about the Pool of Siloam near Jerusalem. They know about other bodies of water. They get that sort of uh, thing correct.
0: Yeah. Okay. References to other places. The Field of Blood. Mm -hmm. Gabbatha. Gethsemane. Golgotha. The Mount of Olives. The Sheep Gate. Solomon's
1: Colonnade. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. So what we're finding is... they they know their way around Jerusalem uh, the the, the gospel writers and obviously something like the Mount of Olives is is quite a big thing and you get the specific knowledge that there's the Mount of Olives but they also have the mention of Gethsemane now the interesting thing about Gethsemane is Gethsemane is not mentioned outside the gospels and yet when you go through this word Gethsemane it's got two parts Geth which is some sort of uh, press and Semane, which is olive oil and nowhere do they um, bring... Out the meaning of that. They just happen to have somewhere where you're pressing olive oil and it's set on, oh, the Mount of Olives. And so it's the fact that they have the local knowledge, uh, language. How would someone who lives a long way away know what a local would call it so they get the correct local name? So it's even things that uh, are so obscure they're not able to be looked up. Um, and so there are two gardens you get mentioned. The other one is the Garden at the Resurrection where, again, archaeological evidence seems to suggest that there is actually a garden. So you get two specific gardens which are mentioned in the New Testament in an amazing piece of local knowledge.
0: Another thing that I found really interesting as we look through this are the exact speech slide that you've got of drawing from a well. Mm-hmm. So, and you've got it in a monitor there if that yeah. helps you. But, but explain to all of us, please, why this is to me this is a huge part of of the integrity of these gospels so explain it please so
1: often let's say you go to a funeral and you remember stories about the deceased and you often share stories with people and you're sharing different stories but they have the same traits same character traits well we get things like that in the gospels and this is actually about one particular event in matthew jesus is reported as praying that he wouldn't have to go through the crucifixion. And the words he used is, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's quite an unusual phrase for that. That's not reported in the other Gospels with the word cup. But in John, as they go to arrest Jesus in the garden, and Peter tries to intervene, he says, shan't I drink the cup the father's given me. Now, this is amazing. Why would he use the word cup at that point? Well, because he had cup on the mind. It's a, a simple explanation. And so you get these two accounts, which are actually reporting, you know, one thing that happens shortly after the other, and the exact wording seems to match. So in other words, the simplest explanation, the one that will do the most work, you know, is actually to suggest that this is historically true. Jesus actually said the word Okay, a second example that you use is uh, uh, this one after the resurrection. So at the resurrection, the accounts of Matthew and John are really quite different. You know, in Matthew, angel comes down, scares away the guards. Um, They go off into town. Um, Then along come the women. They see him uh, seated on the stone that's rolled away. He informs them. They then uh, run away and meet Jesus. In John, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it's still dark and sees the stone rolled away. Runs back and says we don't know where they've laid him implying. There's more than just her then two disciples run to the tomb uh, They look in see nothing Mary gets back to the tomb. She looks in sees the um, two gentlemen who tell her about uh, Jesus being risen and she turns around and sees the gardener who happens to be Jesus so they're quite different accounts, but they're, they're, they're the same on the level of empty tomb first meeting Jesus next But then they have these matches on tiny things. So in Matthew, the women run away from seeing the angel and it says they came and saw Jesus and they took hold of his feet. In John, Jesus says, do not cling on to me, implying touch. In Matthew, Jesus then immediately says, "Um, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And that clearly doesn't mean his physical brothers. It means his disciples because it talks about later in the passage about the 11 going to Galilee. So that's an unusual phrase to use to refer to his disciples. But we have exactly the same in John, where he says to Mary, uh, I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. Of course, they've got the same father, therefore they're brothers. There's a logic to it, and... We get this match. So again, amidst all the, uh, you've got the, they agree on the big things, the resurrection accounts, they've got differences at the middle level, and then they agree on these tiny things. And to me, that's exactly what I'd expect with um, true reporting, as I'm sure you'd experience from law.
0: Yeah, I, I, with, within the, the legal framework, the easiest way to tell if three or four people have, are making up their story and have done this conspiracy to figure it out, is they all use the exact same language and say the exact same thing. If you've got three or four people describing a car wreck with the exact same language, the exact same perspective, you know they got together ahead of time and coordinated their story. It just doesn't happen otherwise. Otherwise, you've got one person who says it, from their perspective of what they saw and what was important to them. And somebody else who thinks something else is important, still gets the car wrecked the same. It was still this car against that car, ran the red light. But one finds something else important from a different perspective. Or one hears someone say something and doesn't need to repeat what's already been said, just needs to tie in occasionally to give additional detail that had been left out. All of that kind of stuff are marks of authenticity from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. All right, we are out of time, and I want to uh, announce a, a couple of closing announcements and say a blessing over the class uh, this is the, the The good news is you get you 'll get one of peter 's books for free. There should be enough for one per family. The bad news is. I've got to whisk Peter away to get his luggage and things, to get him to the airport, so he cannot stay here and sign them or greet you. And I apologize about that. He is one of the most gracious people in the world. I wish that you had a chance to visit with him more, but I will impose on him and, God willing, get him to come back where we've got a little bit more time next time. So will you join me in saying thank you? I've also got a got a daughter I've got to get to the airport as well. So, Rachel, get ready, honey. We've got to go. Um, uh, so we're going to have to scoot out of here, uh, get a copy of the book, read it, go to Amazon.com, five stars. I'll see you next Sunday, God willing. I will have copies of your Torah devotional for next year, and we'll discuss Advent and have uh, uh, Advent. Uh, we've, I've got some fun things planned. So can I say a blessing over you in the name of Jesus, and then we'll leave. Father, we do come in the name of Jesus, and we ask your blessings upon all ears that hear and ask you to, to uh, bless with grace, with faith, with intelligence and renewed minds, uh, um, uh, those of us who seek to understand you. And Father, those that do not seek to understand you, I pray that you will interrupt their thoughts, and that you will be glorified by what we think. what we say, by how we live. You are a God worthy of all of our praise and devotion. And through Jesus Christ we offer it to you. Amen.